history has been rewritten. As a matter of fact, kids in public schools, and I really commend you all for having your kids in homeschooling, because our history no longer is taught in the public schools. It has been erased or rewritten. But I want to go back to that quote from Benjamin Franklin, because you see the secular media. The secularists tell you that Benjamin Franklin was a deist. The definition of a deist is a deist believes that God just created the universe and then he went to sleep. Uh, a, a way to describe a deist is someone who winds a clock, puts it on a shelf, and then goes the other way and lets time go by. I want you to note two things from that quote. He said, I have lived a long time, and the longer I live, the more sure I am of this fact, that God governs the affairs of men. That is not the quote of a deist. Because deists do not believe that God governs the affairs of men. They believe men are on their own. The second part of that quote, continuing, if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can be built without his aid? Again, it assumes a total involvement of God with us. But I want to continue on that quote because it didn't end there. After he said that, he said, the sacred scriptures tell us, Unless the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. And then he said, if we choose to build this country without him, we will fare no better than the builders of Babel. And then he concluded by saying, I beseech you therefore, my brethren, that from now henceforth, before we proceed with our deliberations, we meet daily in this room for prayer, seeking God's direction and wisdom before we proceed to business. Let me give you the context. The Constitutional Convention was going on for four weeks, and they were at each other's neck because everybody had their own plan. Connecticut wanted the Connecticut plan. New York wanted the New York plan. Pennsylvania wanted the Pennsylvania plan. They were ready to go home. And it is at that time that this so-called ungodly framer made this long statement. They took two days off. They actually all went to church together. And the preacher was Brother Witherspoon, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. And he preached to them. They met together for prayer that church. When they came back two days later, the whole atmosphere had changed. And they then, within the next nine weeks, they gave us one of the two greatest documents that have ever been written, along with the Declaration of Independence. 
And the reason those two documents have lasted over two centuries, I am convinced it is because they were written on the knees of the framers. These framers were on their knees seeking revelation from above. And as a matter of fact, revelation is what they got. You see, the government, the secularists tried to tell you that that constitution that was up here a minute ago is a secular document. But do you know that there are more quotes from the Bible here than from anything else? Not even from Blackstone's a book of law. This, most of this comes verbatim directly from the Bible and I will be sharing with you some of that. But let's begin by tying into what Desiree was talking about her father. I had a similar experience. I grew up in Cuba under a very strong, oppressive military dictatorship. And the revolution started in the high schools and the universities. I was probably younger than some of the kids here. I was about 14 years old when the revolution started. I was a high school student. And so I found myself involved in a revolution as a teenager. As a result of that, I ended up being captured, being in prison, being tortured. But by the grace of God, I was able to leave Cuba on a student visa and come to the greatest country on the face of the earth. And to tell you the truth, to the greatest state within the greatest country on the face of the earth. I'm very proud to be an American, very proud to be a Texan. I wouldn't want to be any, anywhere else. As a matter of fact, I remember two years ago, I was the keynote speaker at Patriot Academy, and I want to recommend to all of you kids and all of your parents, if you can, send them to Patriot Academy. Patriot Academy is something that David Barton does every summer, and kids your age, meet at the uh, Capitol in Austin for two weeks, and they actually do a mock-up legislature. And they go through uh, uh, preparing bills and voting on bills, and, and it's a wonderful experience on the Constitution and civil government. And so I was speaking at the graduation uh, exercise uh, two years ago, and I was introduced as a Cuban-American. And uh, when I came to the stage, I said, with all due respect, I need to correct that introduction. I do not consider myself a Cuban-American. I am an American who was born in Cuba. And there's a big difference. You see, one of the things that we have going on in America today is trying to divide everybody. That's what's behind all these hyphenated Americans. It is, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. But uh, anyway, one of the problems that we are having in America, and I come across people all the time that tell me, oh, we could never lose our freedoms here. We are losing our freedoms here. 
The difference is here is happening a little bit at a time. I told my freedoms disappear overnight. Here is happening a little bit at a time. And we have become complacent. It's like the old story of the frog. You throw a frog in a pot of hot water, that frog's going to jump right out. But you put a frog in a pot of cold water and put it on the stove. And that water's warming up a little bit at a time. That frog is comfortable. That frog is complacent. And you can boil that frog to death. And just like that, we are being boiled to death by our complacency. Now, I want to address the kids that are here today. And I want to say to you, first of all, thank you for being here. We need more and more people your age to be involved. But I want to tell you something that may shock you. We are in a battle for the future of America. And I want to tell you something. If we lose that battle, you will not have a future. That's how important it is. And I want you parents to listen to this too. Our complacency could cost us the future of our children and grandchildren. It is important. America is worth saving. This is the greatest country on the face of the earth. You know, this is a very, very unique country. Do you realize that this is the only country on the face of the earth that was founded on the Word of God? Not even Israel. Because when Abraham, or Abraham, came to the promised land, there was no such thing as the Word of God. This country was founded by men and women seeking the freedom to worship God. What a heritage. But you know, even them, when those settlers first arrived, they decided to try a communist experiment. They basically said, all right, we have all this land before us. Let us all work the land together. And we will share in what the land produces. That experiment was a total failure. They almost starved to death. What happened is the strong ones got upset because the weak ones didn't accomplish as much as they did. So after a while they said, well, I'm going to be dumb. I'm going to do less work. And that's what happens when you have a communist uh, situation. Nobody worked. They almost starved to death. As a matter of fact, some of them did starve to death. But they were smart enough and flexible enough that by the second year they said, this didn't work. I'll tell you what, let everyone take your own plot of land. You work the land. You feed your family. And the free enterprise system was born in America the second year of its existence. Now, the question is, if we tried it 400 years ago and it failed, why would we be dumb enough to try it again? Scary, isn't it? 
But anyway, let's move forward 200 years. And now we are at the time of the Great Awakening, Second Great Awakening, and then the Revolution. And they are intertwined. They're very intertwined. And again, what I'm going to tell you is not in the history books. You may have heard it because of your homeschooling. But uh, it was preachers that were at the forefront of the revolution. If we look at the Declaration of Independence, which is probably also in this booklet, in the front or the back, the one I have has the Declaration and the Constitution. You look at the Declaration of Independence, you find a series of grievances against King George. Did you know that each and every one of those grievances were preached from the pulpits of America before they were written on the Declaration? It was preachers from the pulpit calling out King George for the atrocities that the British were perpetrating upon the American people. As a matter of fact, my friend David Barton says, you could really consider the Declaration as a series of sermon summaries. Each and every one of those grievances were sermons, were preached by pastors from the pulpit. The question is, where are those pastors today? You know where they are? Hiding behind their pulpits. Hiding behind their tax exemption. Scared to death of losing people and consequently losing income. Very concerned about being politically correct. Well, it is about time that pastors and Christians in general are more concerned about being biblically correct than being politically correct. So, as a matter of fact, let me ask you a trivia question. Do you know where Paul Revere was going when he made his famous ride? The British are coming, the British are coming. He was going to the home of a pastor. A pastor by the name of Jonas Clark. At the home of Jonas Clark were two of the patriots, John Hancock and Samuel Adams. Of course, you know what was our first battle for independence, right? The Battle of Lexington. But did you know that Pastor Jonas Clark was at the forefront of the Battle of Lexington? And you know that it was the men from his congregation fighting with him in the Battle of Lexington? As a matter of fact, it was so interesting. Because you see, these were men of honor. Men of honor. As the British were coming, Pastor Clark and his men could not fire first. Because they didn't want to be the aggressors. So they stood there. Until the British fired. And over a dozen men fell dead. Before they returned fire. 
And of course that wasn't true in any of the other battles because then the British had already fired upon the American people. But Pastor Jonas Clark was one of many pastors that were probably the most feared men by the British Army. They called them the Black Robe Regiment. These pastors normally wore long black robes. I want to tell you about another pastor. His name was Peter Muhlenberg. Pastor Muhlenberg one day, one Sunday he's preaching at his church, and after he finishes sermon, he begins unbuttoning his black robe. And as he takes it off, he has the militia uniform underneath. He pulls out a musket from behind the pulpit and he turns to his congregation and he says, how many of you men will follow me to go fight for our independence? 320 men from his church walked out after him to fight for our independence that Sunday. That is our history. That is our heritage that unfortunately has been erased from our history books. But again, it leads us to the question, where are those pastors today? And why? You know, we hear a lot of excuses. One excuse that I hear quite often is separation of church and state. Well, you know, I know this booklet very well. I know the Declaration even better than the Constitution. Separation of church and state is not in the Constitution. It's not in the Declaration of Independence. Where does it come from? Well, let's go back even before the letter. When the settlers came to America, they came because in England, if you were not a member of the Church of England, you were a heretic and you were persecuted. So they came seeking the freedom to worship God. So now, 200 years after, when the framers are trying to put together this constitutional representative republic, all 13 colonies were concerned that this new government was not going to impose upon them state religion like their forefathers had fled from 200 years before. All 13 colonies were concerned. That concern was expressed by the Danbury Baptists. And so Thomas Jefferson writes a letter to the Danbury Baptists to appease their fears. I want to point out three things on that letter. Number one, Thomas Jefferson says, in matters of faith and worship. Those matters are only between you and God and no one has the right to interfere. Very clear. Secondly, he says, the legislature shall not establish a state religion or prohibit the free exercise thereof, citing verbatim the First Amendment of the Constitution. And then he says, thus, 
erecting a wall of separation between church and state. When you look at those three statements in context, it is absolutely obvious that Jefferson was talking about a one-way wall. A one-way wall to keep government from imposing a state religion upon the people. A one-way wall to keep government from interfering with the free exercise of religion. But in no way, shape, or form can you infer that Jefferson was saying that the church should not have an influence upon every area of society. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us exactly the opposite. The Word of God says, occupy till he comes. Occupy is a military term. You occupy after you take the top of the hill. You never occupy the valley because you get clovered in the valley. First you conquer the hill and then you occupy the hill. So you occupy from a position of victory. And as a matter of fact, God calls us to have an influence upon every area of society. Whether it is arts and entertainment, or the media, or sports, or education, or business, or government. As a matter of fact, I have traveled to different countries in what are called marketplace conferences. Where we teach business people how to do business according to the Word of God. Christians don't know how to do business according to the Word of God. They think that the Bible doesn't speak about business. The Bible speaks a lot about business. And as a matter of fact, I have taught a class just on how do you do business according to the Word of God. So the Bible addresses every one of those issues. But the problem is this, you see. Jesus said, you're the light of the world. But you know what we do? We go to church with our little flashlights. And we point the light on one another. Boy, are we good about criticizing one another. About gossiping about one another. But light is worthless unless you point it to darkness. That's out there in the marketplace. Jesus also said, you're the salt of the earth. Salt is a preserver. But in order for salt to preserve anything, you have to put it upon that which you want to preserve. It is about time that we fight to preserve the sanctity of life. It is about time that we fight to preserve the sanctity of marriage. It's about time that we fight to preserve the virtue of our teenagers. You see, we've been too complacent. But that's not the only excuse that I get. Let me tell you another excuse that I get very often. And this one sounds very pious. I get that from pastors all the time. Oh, God just called me to preach the gospel. Sounds very good. My question is, tell me what is the gospel? Because the gospel is a lot more than John 3.16. 
As a matter of fact, let me not answer that question. Let me let the Apostle Paul answer that question. In Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul says, My hands are free from the blood of all men, because I have not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God is from cover to cover. From Genesis 1-1 to the end of Revelation. And the Bible has a lot to say about a lot more issues other than salvation. And let me tell you what he referred to when he said, My hands are free from the blood of all men. He was referring to Ezekiel 3.18 and Ezekiel 3.19. Ezekiel 3.18 says, If you do not warn the wicked of his wicked ways, he will die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require of your hands. Pretty heavy, isn't it? 319. But if you warn the wicked of his wicked ways, and he doesn't turn from it, he still will die in his iniquity, but you have redeemed your soul. Our responsibility? To warn the wicked. How the wicked responds? That's not your business. That's between that person and God. But our responsibility is to warn the wicked. Proverbs chapter 17 verse 15 says this. He who justifies the wicked or he that condemns the just, both of them are an abomination to the Lord. Let me ask you a question. If you are silent, are you not justifying the wicked? Silence is not an option. Von Hofer said... Silence in the face of evil is evil itself. You know, there was a, another pastor in Nazi Germany. Besides Bonhoeffer, his name was Martin Niemuller. And Martin Niemuller said one time, first they came for the socialists. And I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists. And I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews. And I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Finally, they came for me. And there was no one left to speak on my behalf. Silence is not an option. Let me tell you about another story about Pastor Niemuller. Pastor Niemuller was arrested one evening. And they took him to prison and they threw him in the holding tank. A cell with all the drunks that had been picked up that night. Martin E. Mueller was a Lutheran pastor. So he wore this black garb with the pastoral collar and he's out there in the, in the holding tank. In the morning a Lutheran chaplain dressed just like E. Mueller walks in and he sees Niemuller inside the cell with all the drunks. And he says, Brother, why are you in there? Niemuller stands up and says, My dear brother, considering what is happening in our country today, why are you not in here? You see, the time to be passive is long gone. I want to share with you a couple of statistics 
One of them was a statistic that I heard a little over a year ago. And the statistic said the following. It said that in the United States there were approximately 65 million evangelical Christians. That of those, only 50% were registered to vote. And that of the 50% that were registered to vote, only 50% had voted on the last, in the last election. That means three out of every four evangelical Christians stayed at home. We're talking about 48 million Christians. I have since talked to two different Catholic bishops who tell me the percentages are the same in the Catholic Church. Three out of four Christians staying at home. We get what we deserve. Now, this leads me to the other excuse that I hear not just from pastors, but from many Christians. I am certain that each and every one of you have heard this excuse. Perhaps many of you have even said it. And it is this. Politics is a dirty business. I don't want any part of it. And you wash your hands just like Pontius Pilate. Let me share another scripture with you. Proverbs chapter 29 verse 2. Which says, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. When the wicked rule, people mourn. Well, if the righteous, the people of principle, are not voting, are not even running for office, what is left? The wicked electing the wicked. And it is our fault. Let me show you something. Every time you go like that, the three fingers pointing at you. It is our fault. There are a lot of young people here, but there are a few that are perhaps old enough to remember Pogo. You remember Pogo? Comic strip that I used to read when I was a kid. And Pogo once said, I've found the enemy and the enemy is us. That's the truth. It is our fault. We have a responsibility. You know, one of the things that was asked of Benjamin Franklin after the Constitutional Convention, someone asked him, what kind of government are you giving us? And he said, a republic, if you can keep it. You see, we need to understand this document because of the following. Of all the framers, the one whose quotes I find terrific is Thomas Jefferson. And Thomas Jefferson said, if a people expect to be ignorant and free, they expect what never was and never will be. Thomas Jefferson also said something else concerning this little book. And it is very appropriate. He said the Constitution is like chains to bind the mischief of government. I'm going to repeat it. You need to memorize it. The Constitution is like chains to bind the mischief of government. He also said, 
A government big enough to give you everything you want is also big enough to take away everything you have. So, I'll tell you, we need to understand this book. As a matter of fact, the first ten amendments that are called the Bill of Rights, it would be better called the Bill of Restrictions. Because all ten of them are to bind what government cannot do. What the federal government cannot do. Which, unfortunately, each and every one of them are being trampled upon today. But it is really a bill of restrictions. Let me share something with you. For those of you that perhaps think that this is not tied to the Constitution. Did you know that the Bible tells you exactly who to vote for? The Bible tells you exactly how to vet a candidate. Let me put it in context. Moses has just crossed the Red Sea. And now Moses is in the wilderness trying to govern a million people. And Moses is going bananas. And here comes his father-in-law, Jethro. And his father-in-law says, Moses, what you're doing is not good. And in Exodus 18.21, God speaks to Moses through Jethro. And he says, you select from among the people. Now note that God doesn't say, I will appoint. No, 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 no. You select, which is the same as you elect. You select from among the people. And then he gives four qualifications. Able men, such as fear God... Men of truth, hating covetousness. I'm going to repeat him. You need to memorize him. That's how you vet a candidate. Able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness. Let's define those terms. Able men. And women, of course. What does that mean? That means elect people who are capable of doing the job. Stop electing the village idiot. <laughs> Number two. Such as fear God. Well, what does it mean to fear God? Well, if you fear God, you obey God's precepts. In America, we call that a Judeo-Christian ethic. What is a Judeo-Christian ethic? First of all, it's a moral code of conduct. Then is honesty, integrity, hard work, individual responsibility, the rule of law, and yes, free enterprise, unlimited government. And the Bible has a lot to say about all of these. Able men, such as fear God. Number three, men of truth. Let me ask you, aren't you tired of men and women of lies in government? I mean... They tell you one lie to cover up the previous lie. Whether it is Benghazi or the IRS or the NSA or whatever, it's all lies upon lies upon lies. It is about time that we have men and women of truth running our government. 
But you know that third one is easy to correct. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever had a candidate for public office tell you all the wonderful things they're going to do? All these wonderful promises only to get into office and do exactly the opposite? Any of you had that experience? Well, as I said, that's easy to correct. Stop listening to their rhetoric and start looking at their record. They all have a record. Don't listen to what they say. Look at what they've done. Jesus put it this way. Ye shall know them by their fruit. Check the fruit. You know, today with the internet, very easy to find the record. They can't hide from the record. But there is even better than that because dozens of Christian organizations put out voters' guides that tell you exactly how every candidate has voted in the past. So able men, such as fear God, men of truth, number four, hating covetousness. Now, covetousness in government is not primarily about money. It is primarily about power and control. These politicians covet power and they covet the control that that power gives them over we the people. That's why we have politicians in Washington that have been there for 30 years and they want to be there another 20. They do not want to relinquish that power. So able men, such as fear God, men of truth, heading covetousness. And it continues, and it says, and set them up as rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, rulers of ten. So what do you have? You have Moses, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, rulers of ten. That is equivalent to federal government, state government, county government, local government. Verse 22. And only take up to Moses, that is to the federal government, matters of grave importance. Everything else you handle yourself at the local level. That is Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution. That's the Ninth Amendment, and that's the Tenth Amendment. Any of you kids know what Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution says? That is called the Enumerated Powers of Congress. Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution lists 18 powers that Congress have the authority to be involved in. If it's not there... Federal government's got no business being involved there. Let me give you a couple of examples. Education is not in Article 1, Section 8. And you, more than anybody else, should know. Does it make any sense that a bunch of unelected bureaucrats in Washington, D.C. will tell us how to educate our children and grandchildren? No. That needs to be at the local level. If anything, with a local school board, parents and teachers. That's why homeschooling is exploding around the country. Because more and more and more parents are saying, I am not going to have my children exposed with the garbage that Common Core is promoting. But according to Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, the Department of Education is unconstitutional. We should get rid of it. 
Let me tell you another word that is not in Article 1, Section 8. It is the word environment. Nowhere in Article 1, Section 8. Do you realize that we have enough oil and gas in this country to be totally energy independent? The only reason we are not doing more, and as a matter of fact, the only place we're doing anything in oil and gas exploration is on private lands. Because there are two agencies of the federal government that are doing all they can to thwart any oil exploration. And that is the EPA and the Endangered Species Act. They're the two government agencies that are doing the most to destroy our economy. And the other thing is, as a result of that, we buy a whole bunch of oil from our enemies that want to kill us. Now, isn't that crazy? Especially when we got plenty of it here. But, you see, remember that quote that I shared with you from Jefferson? If a people expect to be ignorant and free, they expect what never was and never will be. Hosea 4.6 says it another way. It says, my people perish for lack of knowledge. See, it behooves us to know the truth. Because Jesus told us in John 8.32 that the truth will set you free. But if you don't know the truth, it's not going to set you free. So, it is important that we know the truth of this document. You know, let me tell you how revolutionary the Constitution was. Before this document, every government around the world, for millennia, the model was authority flows from God to the government to the people. Every government around the world had that model. Authority flows from God to the government to the people. And every government was ruled by either a tyrant or a monarch that exerted total influence upon the people, and the people were serfs of that government, even in the Old Testament. If you read the book of 1 Samuel, the people came to the prophet Samuel saying, we want the king like all the heathen nations have. And God said to, Moses, uh, to Samuel, Samuel, they are not rejecting you. They are re rejecting me. And so the people of God impose upon themselves the same worldly system. Authority flows from God to the government to the people. And the people became serfs of that government. And let me tell you, if you read First and Second Kings, you find a very interesting correlation. Every time Israel or Judah had a righteous king, the whole country followed the Lord. There was peace, there was prosperity, there was harmony. Every time Israel or Judah had a wicked king, the whole country went to idolatry, there were wars, there was strife, there was famine. Direct correlation, as the government went, so went the people. Now, what the framers did, is they turned that system right side up. 
and the model that the Constitution gave us. It is imperative that you understand this. The, the model that the Constitution gave us, and I believe was on the divine inspiration, authority no longer runs from God to the government to the people. Under the Constitution, the model of this constitutional representative republic its authority flows from God to the people to the government. Catch this. Not the old model from God to the government to the people. The new model of the Constitution. Authority flows from God to the people to the government. And with that authority comes a responsibility. Since all authority has been placed upon we the people. It is not coincidental that the first three words in this document are we the people. Because that's where all authority is upon we the people. God has conferred under the Constitution all authority to we the people. And with that we have a responsibility to elect righteous leaders. If we don't, God is going to hold us responsible. See, that's why we missed it. We missed it. And we think we are doing God's work by saying, Oh, I don't want to get involved with the things of the world. I'm just going to hide behind the four walls and sing hallelujah and kumbaya. While the whole country is going down a precipice. That is irresponsible and that is not biblical. Jesus was extremely involved in politics. John the Baptist was extremely involved in politics. When John the Baptist confronted Herod, because he was sleeping with his brother's wife, that was a political statement. As a matter of fact, he confronted the political establishment. When Jesus confronted the Pharisees and called them a bunch of hypocrites, he was confronting the political establishment. Because you see... At that time, at the time of Jesus, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the priesthood, the high priest, were all puppets of Rome. And as a matter of fact, they even had to dilute their theology to accommodate all the gods that the Romans worshipped and accommodate that Caesar was worshipped as, as a god. Otherwise, it would be their head. As a matter of fact, you read in the Gospels that Caiaphas said, the high priest, it is more profitable that one man die for the whole nation. And the Bible tells you that he was speaking prophetically. But you know something? He didn't know he was speaking prophetically. Let me translate that into the vernacular. What Caiaphas was saying, better his head than mine. Better his head than mine, because to Caiaphas, to the high priest, to all of them, Jesus was a revolutionary, was a rabble rouser that was going to upset the status quo. And they were going to lose their position of power. That's why they hated Jesus. It wasn't because of theology, it was because of politics, because they saw Jesus as a threat to their 
establishment. Even the king was appointed by the Caesar. So they were all puppets of Rome. As a matter of fact, when Pilate came out to the crowd and said, I find no, no wrong in him. And the crowd cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said, Shall I crucify your king? What was the response of the people? We have no other king but Caesar. Tell me if that's not a political statement. They denied the Christ because of allegiance to a political establishment. But you see, God is calling us to restore the kingdom. God is calling us to exalt the name of Jesus. How is the name of Jesus being exalted when a valedictorian in high school is going to say in speech and he says, well, praise Jesus, and they cut his microphone off. I give glory to God for... They cut his microphone off. How, do, how is it that God is being exalted when just this last month a little girl in a class sneezed and another little girl didn't even say God bless you. She just said bless you. And she got expelled. How is God exalted when a little boy in a dining room in a school is silently giving thanks for his food and a teacher said, you cannot do that in school. That is against the rules. But you know why it has happened? Because we have been too complacent. It is wrong for us to be silent. It is wrong for us to continue to be politically correct. Let me tell you something. I watch. As a matter of fact, my, my son was a, a very strong defender of this woman by the name of Miriam Ibrahim. Miriam Ibrahim was put in a cell in Sudan. Her only crime is being a Christian. She had a 20-month-old baby, and she was pregnant. She gave birth in the cell in shackles. She was told by her captors, you renounce Jesus and we will turn you free. And she said, I will not, I cannot renounce Jesus. The other alternative was a hundred lashes and then hung to the neck by the neck until death. My question is, how many Christians in this country will be willing to take that stand? You see, we have had too easy a Christianity. You know, it was, uh, I think it was Josh, Mac, Mac, uh, Josh McDowell that said, if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? And to many of us, there isn't any. Because at work, nobody knows you're a Christian. Because you don't want to offend anybody. You don't want to, perhaps I will lose my job. You don't dare put a Bible on your desk because, oh, that, that will be politically incorrect. You know, I don't know about you, but my greatest goal in life 
is to one day be able to hear from my Savior. Well done, good and faithful servant. Nothing is worth more than that. Jesus also said, if you are ashamed of me before men, I will also be ashamed of you before my Father who is in heaven. I'll tell you what. Too many of us have been too complacent. If I'm standing on toes, just say ouch. But it is time that we get shaken up. It is time that we get shaken up. I want to finish by going over the second paragraph of the preamble of the declaration. Where it says, we hold this truth to be self-evident. Well, the problem with too many politicians is that it's not very self-evident to them. And it continues by saying that all men are created equal. Again, the problem by too many of those in power is that some are more equal than others. We saw it with the bailouts. We saw it with Solyndra. We saw it with General Electric. We saw it with General Motors. We see it more than anything else with Obamacare. Here is a law that nobody wanted. That Nancy Pelosi said, we got to pass it before we read it. How crazy is that? That Congress who passed the law, they said, we want an exemption. That the IRS who are supposed to be the enforcers for this law, they said, we want an exemption. That big business who finances the campaigns of this administration, they said, we want an exemption. That the labor unions who provide the foot soldiers for their campaigns, they said, we want an exemption. Well, what about we the people? What about we the people? But you see, we have been too complacent and too silent. The declaration continues. That they are endowed, and what are the next three words? By their creator. Three words that the government would like to erase. Because you see, they want you to believe that your rights come from almighty government. But the only thing that makes those rights unalienable is if they come from God. Because if they come from government, government can take them away. Let me tell you, all totalitarian regimes, I can tell you by experience, we have a communist system in Cuba. Let me tell you what happened after Castro took over in Cuba. Not only did they confiscate all private property, did they, they attack freedom of the press and shut down newspapers and television? They also attack religion. The same things that we are seeing today happen in Cuba. They would come, soldiers would come into a kindergarten class. And they would say to the kids, All right, kids, close your eyes and pray to God for candy. Come on, come on, come on. Close your eyes and pray to God for candy. Where's the candy? No candy. Alright, close your eyes again and pray to Fidel for candy. 
And while their eyes were closed, soldiers very quietly would put candy on all the desks. You know, I mentioned that in a speech about a year ago in Dallas. There was a lady from Romania in the crowd, and afterwards she told me, Ceausescu did exactly the same thing in Romania. You see, a totalitarian regime, a socialist regime, requires the destruction of God so that government can become your God. See, it is not really the end or the, the, the attack on religion. Attack on religion is a means to make government your God. The same thing on the attack on the family. It is the means to make loyalty not to the family, not to God, but to almighty government. The, con the declaration continues. But they are endowed by their creator, is what it says, with certain unalienable rights. Among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And those are listed in order of importance. Of course, the most important of them all is life. In 1973, nine unelected justices of the Supreme Court decided that a baby in the womb did not have that unalienable right to life, as stated in the Declaration of Independence. And they legalized abortion. 55 million babies have been murdered in America through abortion since that time. You know, it is time that we as Christians get on their faces, get on their knees, crying out in repentance corporately for the sin of abortion. The blood of 55 million babies cries out to God like the blood of Abel did. What a shame. But you know something? When that happened in 1973, the church remained silent. And their excuse is a political issue. Ten years before, 1962, the Supreme Court took out prayer from schools. Again, the church remained silent. It's a political issue, is what they said. 1963, they banned the Bible from all schools. Again, the church remains silent. It's a political issue. How can you call prayer a political issue? How can you call the reading of the Bible a political issue? But let me give you a little bit of background on that decision because that's very interesting. 120 years before, in 1844, but let me, before I say that, let me say something else. Did you know that the very first Bible that was printed in America was printed under the auspices of Congress? And it was printed to be the primary textbook in primary school, in high schools, and in universities. In 1844, there was a public school that wanted to take the Bible and not teach the Bible. That case came to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court says, if you want to not teach the Bible, that's your prerogative. But we will not fund you. We will not fund any public school that does not teach the Bible. 
how far can we come? Now, 120 years later, 1963, the Supreme Court struck down the Bible. And you know what the reasoning they gave for buying the Bible was an opinion from a psychologist that said if children read the New Testament with, with, without someone explaining it to them, it can cause brain damage. I think the nine Supreme Court justices had brain damage. But again, the shameful thing is the church remains silent. You see, we can't remain silent anymore. Do you think that honors God? Do you think God is pleased with our silence? No. Absolutely not. You know, the prophet Jeremiah put it this way. False prophets preaching peace, peace when there is no peace. Tickling men's ears. It's an abomination before God. And it's happening in the pulpits of America. We need many preachers to come to repentance. And to preach the whole counsel of God. As a matter of fact. In the last 12 months I have done. 37 pastors conferences. I'll be doing 4 more next week. And the reason I'm doing this. Is because after I heard the statistics that I shared with you. And I came home. And I was in my quiet time with the Lord. What I felt. The Lord saying to me was, if there's one group of people that can be blamed for what's happening in America, it is the pastors. Because I've been too passive. And the Lord took me to Ezekiel 3.17, which says, Son of man, I call you as a watchman on the wall. To do two things, to hear from me and to warn the people. And what I heard that was a mandate that God gave me, well, go tell my pastors to go warn my people. There are four things that I tell pastors, and I want to ask each and every one of you to go tell your pastor at your church. Number one, set up a voter registration table in the lobby of your church. Every church in America should have a voter registration table in their lobby every Sunday. Now, they may come back to you and say, that's a political issue. Your response, no, it is not a political issue. It's our civic responsibility. Voter registration is not partisan, but you cannot vote if you're not registered to vote. And the deadline is October the 6th. You have to be registered a month before election. The deadline is October. We only got a couple of Sundays, two, maybe three Sundays. Number two, encourage your pastor to preach about the biblical answers to the social issues that are happening in America. You know... George Barma, who does a lot of uh, surveys among Christians. Two weeks ago, he did a survey. He asked a series of pastors two questions. Question number one. Do you believe that the Bible addresses all the social and political issues that are happening in America today? 90% said yes. Question number two. Do you preach on what the Bible has to say about those issues? Only 10% said yes. That means 80% are doing it not because of ignorance, because of fear. Fear of losing people, fear of losing income, fear of offending somebody, fear of being politically incorrect. 
But as I said before, it's about time that we become biblically correct. Step number three. Encourage your pastor. And by the way, you can't ask the pastor to do this. You volunteer to go sit at that table. You go volunteer to go get the voter registration card and get yourself registered to be a voter registered. And also to get voters guides. There are dozens of Christian organizations that provide free voters guides that vet every candidate and tell you how they voted. Not promoting anybody, just gives you a list of all candidates in any party and how they have voted in all these different issues. And number four, encourage your pastor from the pulpit not to make an idiotic statement like, it doesn't make any difference who you vote for, just go out there and vote. That's stupid. It makes a lot of difference who you vote for. Encourage your pastor to encourage a congregation, vote for men and women that uphold biblical principles. It behooves us to vote for people of integrity, for people that uphold the principles of the Word of God. If we do that, we will take this country back. Now, let me continue with the declaration. Life, as I said at the beginning, destructive. At the end, you know, this so-called healthcare system today, if you look around the world, any country that has socialized medicine, delays on medical care, especially for the elderly, anywhere from 12 to 24 months. What makes you happen is think that it was going to be different in America. As a matter of fact, it's already happening. Look at the veterans that have died because of denied care by the VA hospitals. Men and women that put their lives on the line to defend our liberty, to defend our country. This is shameful. But let me tell you one more thing about life. Do you know that the Second Amendment is not what gives you the right to keep and bear arms? Let me repeat it. The Second Amendment is not what gives you the right to keep and bear arms. What does it say? The right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed upon. Second Amendment assumes you already have that right because that is inherent in that unalienable right to life. If you have an unalienable right to life, you have the right to defend your life and defend the life of your loved ones. Now, second most important is liberty. Because if you have no liberty, you're a slave. And if you have a slave, you cannot pursue happiness. The next sentence says that to secure these rights, governments are instituted. That is, to protect those rights, not to trample upon those rights. Next statement. Government derives its just powers by the consent of the governed. Who are the governed? We are. It's okay if you answer me. We are. Now, when did we give the government the consent to keep taking away all our liberty? But I'll tell you what, the solution is in the next sentence. The next sentence says, when government ceases to work towards these ends, it is our right, and I believe it is our duty, 
to remove that government and replace it with another government. And we have an unprecedented opportunity to do that this November. But we cannot do that if we stay at home. We could not do that if we say, oh, I'm, I'm just one person. One vote doesn't make any difference. It makes a lot of difference. So it is our responsibility to vote for righteous men and women, to vote for righteous leaders. Just think about that. If 48 million, just the evangelical Christians, 5% of that is 2.5 million. 2.5 million people go to the polls. It'll change the outcome of every election. It is our responsibility to vote for righteous leaders. I'm going to repeat again Proverbs 29.2. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. When the wicked rule, people mourn. If the righteous are not voting, if the righteous are not running for office, as I said before, it only leaves the wicked electing the wicked. I want to say something to the young people. You notice I quoted a lot of scripture. I never opened the Bible. Let me tell you. Psalms 119 says, Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I may not sin against thee. Suppose you were in prison without a Bible. Only Bible you have is what's hidden in your heart. Suppose you're in the grocery store. And you come across someone who needs you to minister to them. But you don't have a Bible. How are you going to quote scripture to them? I encourage you. Young and old. Memorize the word of God. Because that becomes alive in you. And the Lord will bring it to memory when you need it. I want to finish with the very last words. Of the Declaration of Independence. Where those framers said. Relying upon the protection of divine providence. We mutually pledge to each other. Our lives. Our fortunes. And our sacred honor. I've already told you how our lives are under attack from the cradle to the grave. Our fortunes? Let me tell you that government is taking more and more money out in taxation and in regulation. So, they can take our lives. They can take our fortunes. But no one can take our honor. No one can take our honor. I want us to stand, please. And I want us to do something. I want us to make a covenant to one another before God. I want us to repeat this covenant as a covenant to one another before God. I'm going to repeat it one statement at a time. I want you to repeat it to one another. Get in pairs, facing one another. If there's a straggler, just make a pair of three. I'm going to repeat it one statement at a time. You repeat it from the heart. Relying upon the protection of divine providence. I don't hear much heart there. Let's try it again. Let's try it again. Relying upon the protection of divine providence. We mutually pledge to each other. Our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. To do all we can. To exalt the name of Jesus Christ in America. To do all we can to restore righteousness to America. 
to make America again that shining city on a hill to the glory of God. Thank you. God bless you. God bless America. God bless Texas.